Well, friends, the text of Scripture I'd like to draw your attention to is Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. So if you're following along in your Bible, that's where to turn Mark 10, verses 17 through 27. We're continuing as we walk through the Gospel according to Mark, looking at Jesus and His ministry. I'll read the passage, we'll pray for God's help and blessing, and then we'll go from there. This is a word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not... Bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Our God, we confess that all things are indeed possible with you, and that the strength of human flesh, just as we pray, that's not what we trust. With man, it is impossible to enter your kingdom. It's impossible to know you. We don't look to ourselves, to our own wisdom. We look to you, who have revealed yourself most fully in Jesus Christ as we find him on the pages of your written word. We look to you who is able to shape hearts, to soften and melt hard and stony hearts, to make us responsive to your words, to open our ears. We plead with you that you would do these very things in our midst this morning. Pour out your spirit on the proclamation of your word. Give me faithfulness. Give me clarity. Give me power. Give all of us hearers alertness of mind, softness of heart, and a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Give us the purity of heart with which alone we might see you. We pray you do more among us than we could ask or imagine to your glory eternally in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to congratulate you all for getting here this morning. It's been an adventurous week of driving for some of us. We've had two big rainstorms. I wonder if any of us encountered hazards on the road, flooded roads or felled branches perhaps. And then, of course, today we observe our annual tradition of somehow getting to church around road closures 
from the California International Marathon. And over the years here at church, we've had some horror stories related to people having trouble getting here because of the marathon. Especially there was one year when there was a marathon and a really big rainstorm in the same day. That was epic. But driving can be a perilous experience. And for any number of reasons, sometimes while driving, we need cautions and warnings. Hazards lie ahead. We need to be prepared so that we can be alert and make good choices. And coming to our text in the Gospel according to Mark, this section of the book has been dealing with the implications of who Jesus is as the anointed Messiah, who is also the suffering servant of the Lord. Jesus' greatness as the Messiah, as the King, will appear paradoxically, not through human greatness, but through suffering and service and sacrifice. He's headed, at this point in Mark, even as we saw in verse 17, he's setting out, where is he headed? Toward the cross, where he will make the climactic atoning sacrifice under the wrath of God for the sins of his people. That's what kind of Messiah, that's what kind of king he is. And so this section has been defining, this middle section of Mark, defining for us discipleship to a suffering servant Messiah. What does it look like to be a follower of the suffering servant Messiah? And guess what? It's characterized by things like self-denial and humility. The world's values are turned on their head. And we saw this very thing last week when we were in verses 13 to 16, just the previous text before ours today. And we were warned based on what Jesus said in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The faith of childlike receiving qualifies one to enter the kingdom of God. And in many ways, our text today serves as the mirror image of that previous passage. There we saw Jesus welcoming children and pointing to them as an object lesson of the sort of humble, simple, open-handed receiving that gains eternal life. But today we see actually a vivid counterexample. The rich man's story will serve as a tragic illustration of what opposes childlike receiving. And today we're going through verse 27. You may see in your Bible that um, the same kind of, uh, however the headings are, the text may go through verse 31. The conversation that Jesus has with his disciples extends through verse 31, but the topic changes a little bit, moving into verse 28. So we're going to handle verses 28 to 31, Lord willing, next week on their own. But here's the main thing that God is telling us today through this story in his word. It is a warning. Human treasures block us from God's kingdom. God is warning us this morning that human treasures block us from God's kingdom. Now our journey through this story will be like driving to a destination on a hazardous road. And as we motor along, we're going to see the text do a few things. Okay, First, we're going to see the text point out two dangers. The text will point out two dangers. Then the text will present two ways to live. The text will present two ways to live. And finally, the text will press us toward two resolutions. It will press us toward two resolutions. Two dangers, two ways to live, two resolutions. So let's go on in 
into the story. Uh, In verse 17, Jesus is in the southern region of Judea and the region also across the Dead Sea. He's in the south, not Galilee, where he's from. And he's beginning his journey. As I said, this will lead him to Jerusalem and the cross. But right at that start, a man approaches him in an urgent manner. It says, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He seems to respect Jesus highly. He kneels when he gets to him and he calls him this unprecedented honorific title of good teacher. People didn't call rabbis this. This was a very high title. And he asks him the weightiest of all questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He senses that Jesus is a a profound rabbi who knows the way to eternal life and is willing and able to provide guidance to this man. Now, the the term inheriting eternal life, we see in verse 17, it'll be used interchangeably with some other similar terms. In verse 23, we'll hear about entering the kingdom of God. And in verse 26, we'll hear about being saved. These are all just different ways of describing the same thing. It's being included in God's end times restoration of all things that Christ has come to bring in. It's being a part of the people of God and enjoying the final salvation of God. So Jesus' first surprise is his answer to this question. In verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What is he doing here? Well, I believe he's doing two things. First, and probably most subtly, he's hinting at his own deity. We've already seen in Mark other times that these provocative questions about Jesus' divine nature have been raised and kind of just allowed to float in the air. As the characters in Mark and us, the readers, are left to go, what do we make of this? Back in 2.7, uh, the people surrounding him said, who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus pronounced forgiveness of sin. Then in 4.41, the disciples in the boat with him, they said to each other, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And I believe this is a question in line with those. Jesus saying, Who is good but God alone? If I'm truly good, if I'm essentially good as God alone is, if I'm good enough to reliably guide you to eternal life, then do I not perhaps share the same essential goodness as God the Father? That may be one thing he seems to be doing here by asking this question. But maybe even more pertinent to the story and more pertinent to the conversation with the man, I think at the same time he's pressing the man in a different way. He's pressing the man to understand the distinction, the radical distinction between divine and human goodness. The chasm between God's goodness and man's goodness is immeasurable. So hint, hint, you better not be trusting in your own goodness. Only God is truly good. That said, Jesus then runs down in verse 19 a sampling of the Ten Commandments when he says, uh, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. What is he suggesting here? Well, the man asked for things he could do to inherit eternal life. What about law keeping? Jesus says, what about this? Is that a fruitful way forward? Is there life in keeping God's law? Now the commands that he cites here are 
from the Ten Commandments, and they're specifically from what's called the second table of the law. The commandments on the, the back end that deal with horizontal, interpersonal relationships. He doesn't mention the ones that only address one's relationship with God, things like idolatry and the Sabbath. Why does he focus on the second table, the, the interpersonal, the horizontal commandments? It's probably because these are easier to observe and measure. These are maybe a more clear, objective measure of how we're living. But the implication of Jesus' words here, what he's saying is, have you kept the law of God? And the man's answer in verse 20 is confident. He says, teacher, I have kept all these I have kept from my youth. He says, yes. Now you may be thinking, surely he's not claiming to be sinless. Surely he's just saying that he has usually kept the law. Most of the time it characterizes him more more often than not. No, he's probably claiming to be sinless. Look at how emphatic he is. And with no qualifications, he says, All these things I have kept from my youth. I have done all these things from the start. This is probably what he means is from when I was 12 years old and I became accountable to the law as a man. From day one when I was under the law, I kept the law. I have kept the law. And to make a claim like this, he must be thinking wrong in two ways. One, he's clearly overestimating his own goodness and righteousness. I mean, come on, dude. You've never lied. You've never dishonored your parents. The second problem is that, and it's very related, is that he's reading the law in a very external way. He's underestimating the radical nature of the law's demand on our hearts. And you can recall Jesus setting the record straight in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, Matthew 5.20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the people who are most rigorous about external righteousness. And he says no. He goes on to explain that the commandments are meant to address the heart in a way that leaves nobody unscathed. Leaves nobody safe. Leaves nobody able to say, yep, I've done all that. It profoundly lays bare our utter sinfulness. Like the example he gives in Matthew 5 of, okay, you maybe never murdered anyone, but have you hated somebody else in your heart? If the law is meant to function at that level, if this man were reading the law that way, he would, he would not say, yes, I've done all this from my youth. So we have a man, we're going to find out in verse 22, he's rich. And he's also, he thinks he's doing very well morally. And I mentioned earlier, there'd be two dangers. Two dangers that we'd see in the text. This is where we come to the dangers. Jesus sees two hazards threatening this man, and they apply to us as well. To understand these dangers, let's picture driving in hazardous conditions, a rainstorm. Maybe you're driving yesterday or something like that. And the function of this text that we're getting to here, danger, pointing out danger, it's like laying down two bright orange traffic cones. Let's say a big tree limb has fallen down across the road. What do you need? You need, you need some cones to alert you and to broadcast the danger to you, the driver. Watch out danger ahead. Here are the two warnings. Two dangers. The first one is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. The, Jesus' answer in verse 18 tipped us off. Human goodness counts as nothing before God's goodness. Only God is truly good. And so righteous living, the the way of law-keeping, will never gain us eternal life. It will never gain us access to God. 
Listen to the words of Psalm 15, verses 1 to 3. This was in this man's Bible. He heard texts like this read from the synagogue. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. End quote. And it goes on and keeps describing this blameless person who can approach the Lord and dwell on his holy hill. That is none of us, friends. So Jesus is about to lay down a bright orange traffic cone to redirect this man. Do you need redirection? Do you need this warning? Do you think that you're basically a good person? A person who stands a pretty good chance to stand before God confidently on the day of judgment. Is your way blameless? Have you never lied with your mouth or with your heart? Have you never dishonored your parents? Come on. No one is good but God. The second danger we're going to find out more about is wealth. We don't know yet that this is an issue, but in verse 22, we're going to hear about the danger of wealth. This man is very wealthy. He has great possessions, probably land. And this is actually the danger that's more prominent in our text than self-righteousness. Jesus sees a man who is wealthy and outwardly righteous. He is a man that the world looks at as one to be envied. This is a guy who has his life put together pretty well. He's a person that any traveling philosopher and teacher like Jesus would be glad to count among the company of his followers. These are like the VIP followers, the people you really want on your team. But wealth is no marker of blessing in God's kingdom. Wealth is no advantage in God's kingdom. In fact, it is the opposite. It is a perilous liability. It's a danger. Jesus doesn't see what the world sees. Jesus sees danger. He sees limbs falling across the road in this poor man's way. And because Jesus sees these dangers, he responds with a rescue attempt. By the, by the end of verse 20, when he says, I've, yep, done it from my youth, Jesus knows this man is not being childlike. He sees enough of this guy's heart. He's not in a posture to receive the kingdom of God like a child by faith. He has given this man a golden opportunity to examine his life and to acknowledge, I just don't have what it takes to dwell with the Lord on his holy hill. I'll need something outside of myself. I'll need grace. He's given the man an opportunity to realize that, but the man has not come to that conclusion. So in verse 21, he offers a redirection around the hazard. He says this, it says, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now we might read this requirement as though Jesus is being cynical. Like he's saying, oh yeah, Mr. Lawkeeper, you think you're so devoted to God? Well, how about this? Can you reach up to this high bar of lawkeeping? He's not being cynical though. Verse 21 tells us exactly the motive of why he says this. He loves the man. Jesus is good, and he's doing good for this man. So he presents him a choice between two courses. He has to choose one, and only one. And we today must face the same fork in the road. Which will it be for us?
So again, back to our driving illustration and hazardous conditions, the text is presenting us with two ways to live, like we're approaching a fork in the road. And one way, it turns out, is flooded out. It's impassable. So there's one of those big electronic signs flashing. Keep out, go the other way. What are the two courses before us? This is the the two ways to live. I said we're coming here. Two ways to live. The first one is receive the kingdom like a child. The second is hold on to what I have. Those are the two options before us. Receive the kingdom like a child or hold on to what I have. I read verse 21 a moment ago. There is a lot going on here. Uh, One crucial interpretive question for us to understand is what is the one thing that this man lacks? That's really important. Jesus says, one thing you lack. And as we look at the verse, some partial answers may suggest themselves. When he says, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Okay, so is the one thing he lacks poverty? Or when he says, and you will have treasure in heaven. No, no, no. The one thing he lacks is treasure in heaven. And then he says, and come follow me. No, no, no. The one thing he lacks is Jesus himself. What is it? We, we have all these partial answers that explain part of the verse. What's the one thing he lacks that explains everything he says in verse 21? It's kind of a complex instruction he gives him. I suggest that we interpret it through the lens of verses 14 and 15, our passage that we saw last time. The one thing he lacks is childlike faith. The one thing he lacks is simple, humble, open-handed receiving of the kingdom of God. This would explain the whole verse. Childlike faith would be willing to give up his possessions if that's what he had to do. He'd say, it doesn't mean much to me. Childlike faith would trust God for heavenly treasure that he can't see right now. And childlike faith would take Jesus above all else. Now, some have actually read verse 21 as though it were teaching that this man's works could get him into the kingdom. Like, he's done a decent job of keeping the law. Ah, you've kept all these commandments. Good job. From day one. Good. Now, can you pass the final exam? Can you really prove that you're free from covetousness, from the love of money we heard about last week? But not only does that run afoul of the broader New Testament teaching on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, but it also crashes on the rocks of verse 18. Jesus had made clear already and hinted uh, that that's not what it means. He'd, He'd said, no one is good but God alone. You're not good. The gap between divine and human goodness is so profound that a whole different route will be necessary. So he's not calling him to the highest final hurdle to law keeping righteousness. No, he's calling him to a posture of faith that only receives. He's calling him to a posture of faith that says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. He's calling for the man to do exactly what the guy did in Jesus' parable of the hidden treasure. He tells this parable in Matthew 13, 44. This is exactly what he's telling this guy to do. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's the joy of discovery that the kingdom of God, knowing Christ, 
Following Christ is something that's so good. I'll give up whatever it takes to have Jesus and just to receive the free gift. And like we saw last time in verses 13 to 16, Jesus is not introducing a new requirement, a new criterion apart from repentant faith. That was what at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in chapter 1, he said, repent and believe the gospel. That has been what it takes to follow Jesus. He's not smuggling a new good work through the back door, charitable giving. No, he's defining the condition of heart that will or won't come to Jesus without repentant faith. What kind of heart opens a hand of childlike faith? And it's possible that just as our reliance on our works stands in the way of that kind of approach to Jesus, so might our wealth. So might our things. Now some have also misinterpreted this text by reading the requirements of verse 21 as universal. Everybody, in order to to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him, has to give up all their earthly possessions, give it all away, and have heavenly treasure and follow Jesus. But that doesn't work. There are many examples of believers in the Gospels and in the New Testament that still have some property. Things like houses and boats. This call is tailored to this particular man. But the broader principle that would apply to everyone, that does apply to this man and to you and to me, And everyone who would hear the call of Jesus, and I'll borrow wording from back in chapter 9. If anything would keep you from receiving the kingdom of God as children, cut it off and throw it away. If anything would keep you from receiving the kingdom of God as children by faith, cut it off and throw it away. To come to Jesus and be saved is to renounce every claim to depend on ourselves. And it's to renounce every claim to own ourselves. That's the requirement for everyone. However, the rich have more to give up. They have more to walk away from. They have more pulling them the other direction, more to lay at the feet of Jesus, so the peril is greater for them. And that's why in verse 27, Jesus will say, only God's power can bring people, as we'll see, especially the rich. He said in 23 and 25, especially the rich, only God's power can bring us under the low bar of entry into the kingdom of God. So friends, I hope we're hearing the alarm bells. I hope we're seeing the flashing lights. We are very wealthy in the modern West. We cannot keep a tight grip on our wealth and still receive Jesus in his kingdom. I already said that some people have misinterpreted this text by universalizing what Jesus says in verse 21 in its detail. And I I think I heard a huge collective sigh of relief fill this room. But for us here and now, the greater danger lies in the opposite error. Explaining away Jesus' words until they lose all their bite. But Jesus' words here are meant to bite. They are meant to hurt. Look at the man's reaction in verse 22. He is disheartened. He's surprised in a bad way. Look at the disciples later on in, uh, in verses 24 and 26. They are shocked. They're astonished. This is a jarring word for us. This is challenging for all of us. Now as the story progresses and Jesus explains the danger of holding on to our things, 
we'll find it's interesting. He switches between expressing this as a problem for the rich and a problem for everyone. In verse 23, he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 24, he says it universally. How difficult it will be, uh, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then in 25, he specifies the rich again. So what's going on? He keeps switching between the rich and everyone. Well, yes and. There's, there's, there's layers to this. On the one hand, the danger is universal. No human being is out of the weeds. Because we all have this heart tendency. It's not the stuff that's the problem. We all have this heart tendency to bring our own goods in our hand, our righteousness, our stuff, and to cling to what we've achieved and the, the worldly goods we love and say, can I also have Jesus? But still maintain my dignity and still maintain the pride I have in the, in the things I have. The requirement to receive the, ch- the kingdom as children confronts us all in a radical way. But there is also a special warning and a special danger for those who have more. Because they, or we, have more possibly to give up. And a harder time letting go of it. And as Jesus says in verse 27, only God's power can get us there. To that place of childlike receiving. It is an unnatural place for fallen man to go. So what about you and me, friends, this morning? What kind of grip does money have on our hearts? If Jesus physically appeared to you today and said these words to you, if you want to have eternal life, you will have to give up all of your things. What would you do? Really, what would you do? I know you know what you should say. What would you do? Your house? Your car? Your account? Your retirement? Now, following him may not require that, but it may. We heard last week about the suffering of believers in Hebrews 10.34 who joyfully accepted the seizure of their possessions for the sake of following Christ. That may happen. It's happened before in church history. It still happens in certain parts of the world. And who knows, it may happen here one day. But even beyond that outright persecution of having property seized, there are subtler forms in which we may have to part with our our possessions and our money to have Christ. What about careers that are becoming increasingly out of bounds for Christians because of the moral compromises that they'll require? Things like having to affirm false gender ideology. There are real ways that the world's values, as they conflict with God's values, are going to make certain careers less and less doable for faithful Christians. Or what about just realizing that a certain lifestyle or career impedes your ability to follow Jesus with your whole heart and soul? There is a brother in this church who recently had an inside track at a significant promotion and raise and he turned it down. He didn't pursue it. Why? Simply because it would, it would demand more of his time and pull him away from certain areas of devotion to Christ that are important to him. Are you willing to make those kinds of sacrificial choices? Those are the very ordinary things that all of us might be called to. So these are the two paths before the man in our story, and they're the two choices before us. How does he respond? Verse 22. Sadly, he chooses door B to hold on to his stuff. He rejects childlike faith in order to keep what's in his hand. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is a heartbreaking verse. 
He hears the two options. He counts the cost. And he chooses to keep his possessions. And he walks away happy because he gets all his stuff. He gets to keep his stuff. Thankful with a renewed sense of joy at at how rich he is. Grateful for all he has. No, he goes away sad. That's amazing, isn't it? He had a choice. He is choosing what he wanted, right? Well, it seemed he wanted both. He seemed to think that he could have eternal life while keeping hold of his privilege and his possessions. But now he's realizing that he can't have it both ways. This is a horrible state that he's in. He is conflicted. He is divided. He is in bondage to his things. He's a torn man. He he respects Jesus enough to sense that he is truly losing something. He's truly walking away from something. But he's so bound by his things that he's unable to do any other. And then in verses 23 to 27, Jesus turns to his disciples and takes the conversation to them. And he wants to explain what's going on. He wants to explain the general principle at play and what the warning is that even applies to them. So he lays down the principle in verses 23 and 24. He looked around and said to them, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Again, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is very difficult to enter the kingdom of God, especially for the wealthy. And both times in verse 24, we saw they are amazed. Verse 26, they are exceedingly astonished. They say, Who can be saved? This is surprising to them. Like the other Jews of that day, they naturally associated wealth with divine blessing. This is probably a normal assumption for most people. If anyone is in God's favor, it must be this guy. He is wealthy. He must be someone who has an inside track on the kingdom of God. If anyone has an advantage with Jesus, it must be a guy like this. He's a desirable one. So to drive home his message, Jesus tells this word picture in verse 25 about the camel going through the eye of a needle. And the point here is to illustrate with comic exaggeration something that's impossible. That's the whole point of this. It is impossible to get a camel, the biggest animal that they would have around them in Palestine, through the eye of a needle. One of the smallest openings that you could imagine. He's driving them to the conclusion that they make in verse 26 when they say, well then... Who can be saved? Yes, he says, yes, it is humanly impossible. But only with God and with God alone is this possible. Only the God who is alone good is also the God who alone is powerful enough to bring people into his kingdom, to melt hearts down so that they can fit under that low gate of entry into the kingdom of God. So back to our driving illustration. We've seen road cones warning us of danger. We've seen a fork in the road And the necessity of choosing between them. So now that we've chosen the right course, we need to consult, I was going to say a map, but we don't use maps. We use our app. We look at our navigation app for directions to find out how do we get to where we're going. And that's what our our last thing here, we're going to see two resolutions. Two resolutions. How do we avoid the dangers of wealth and receive the kingdom of God as children? How do we go the right way and get to our destination? So these are the two resolutions that God is pressing on us through his word today. The first one is, count it all as loss. Count it all as loss. Now I'm borrowing the words you may recognize from Philippians 3.7. And there a man very much like the rich man of Mark 10 
In fact, I speculate as some others have, potentially was this a young Saul? Who knows? But anyway, Paul was once a man a lot like this. Uh, He talks about in Philippians 3, the human credentials that could have possibly commended him for the kingdom of God. And he was unsurpassed in this way. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's a guy that would have said, I've done it all for my youth. He had a great argument for an inside track to the kingdom of God by way of human credentials. But he goes on to say that he came to realize that it was all worthless. And he gave it all up for the sake of the righteousness that comes as a gift to open-handed children through faith in Jesus. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I counted it as no longer mine. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Do we count all things as loss, as no longer belonging to us for the sake of knowing Christ? Do we forsake all other claims in order to have the righteousness that depends on faith alone? Are we zealous to protect childlike faith in our hearts? Christ's people, disciples, are called to have a holy zeal that cuts away everything that stands in the way. And just like we, I mentioned the wording of chapter 9, verses 42 to 50, about stumbling blocks, if it causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. What about wealth? Brothers and sisters, every one of us has to make this firm resolution that if something in my life consistently inhibits my childlike receiving of the kingdom of God, I will cut it off. I will throw it away. The stakes are too high to play around with this. We might need to take radical actions. We might need to turn down promotions. We might need to change careers. We might need to give away significant amounts of wealth in a way that would make no sense from an earthly temporal perspective. And I want to say this very directly. There may be some in here who need to offload a very serious chunk of wealth. There may be. It may be you. Because of the hold that it has on your heart. I'm not saying that to drive money into the coffers of River City Grace. You can give to the church. You can give to missions. Can you imagine what some of our missionary partners could do with gifts, large gifts? You can give to the poor. Send your wealth ahead of you to heaven where it accrues to eternal treasure, Jesus promises. But whatever you do, do not let it divert your soul away from wholehearted devotion to Christ. Do not let it choke out your faith. It is not worth it. Don't be like the soil Jesus warned about. That seed falls on it and it sprouts plants in the beginning. But he said in in chapter 4 verse 19, The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Count it as loss 
And just like this man, you will not be happy if you hang on to it. You'll be like the sad man walking away, divided, imprisoned in your soul. Is that joy? Is that the good life? This may be you right now. You may be divided and torn and trying to live for two different masters. But you know that true joy will be found in following the second resolution. The first resolution count as loss. The second resolution, this is where true joy is found. Receive better things from Jesus. Receive better things from Jesus. Christ's words in this text are hard. Like I said, they bite. But we err if we read them as Jesus being a meanie. He's not trying to deprive this man of anything good. He's trying to give him the best. What is the spring from which these words flow that Jesus says? Verse 21, it is love for the man. He's trying to do what love does. Direct him to what's truly good and valuable. He wants to direct him toward heavenly treasure that remains rather than earthly treasure that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. He wants to direct the man to the kingdom of God, the reign of peace and righteousness that will one day overtake the whole earth rather than being left in his sin and judgment. He wants to direct him to freedom from material goods rather than bondage to them. And these are all the things Jesus wants to direct you and me to as well. An eternal kingdom that won't pass away. Heavenly treasure that won't be corrupted. And freedom, true freedom, from the bondage of our material goods. So when Jesus calls for us to make difficult sacrifices to follow Him, He is not being mean. He's not being burdensome. He's calling us to something better. And this is the point that we'll see elaborated in the following text, verses 28 to 31, next week, Lord willing. But everything that we renounce in order to follow Jesus in this life will receive eternal reward in heaven. That is His promise. So trade temporal goods for eternal treasures and receive the very best from Jesus. And many of us have experienced both sides of this. We've, we've known in our, in our experience the conflicted and unfree feeling of trying to hang on on the one hand to my human treasures, my self-righteousness, my stuff, in a way that compri- uh, compromises our childlike receiving. And a lot of us also know the experience, on the other hand, that strange, unexplainable freedom that comes. Have you ever, in a risky way, given things away, banking on eternal reward from Christ, You know that feeling of freedom. You know that feeling of joy and hope. He will make good on His Word. Do your financial choices then reflect faith in Jesus' promise of eternal reward? Let me ask you this. If His promise didn't come true, would that even hurt you? Would you be burned if Jesus were not true in His promises? If not, I wonder whether you've really turned to Him in true faith. If you've really entrusted yourself to Him. Because God will pay us back for losses in His kingdom in the form of heavenly treasure. Now, this doesn't mean that we buy our way into the kingdom by any hint of our own merit. It's just that by His grace, He has established a reward system that some inexplicable way, we don't really know, but it will render eternity with Him even sweeter in compensation for our works and our losses in this life. He will pay it all back, and as we'll see next time, many times over. So these hard words from Jesus 
Come to me and in me find the very best. These are the outreach of his great love to you. He wants to set you free. He wants to give you eternal treasure that will not fail you. So will you and I resolve to receive the best from Jesus? This morning, God has issued a critical warning to us. Human treasures block us from God's kingdom. Any way that we might trust in ourselves or trust in the things we have in this world has the the potential and the danger of blocking us from receiving eternal life. So we have a choice to make. Will we hold on to our stuff and the things that we've accomplished, like the rich man in this story, or will we let go and come to Jesus in childlike faith, a broken-hearted, absolute dependence? Will we survey all our works and count them as loss, count them as nothing to our credit in order to know Jesus? I just want that righteousness that comes by a gift. I just need that righteousness. Will we look at our finances and our stuff and count it as loss too? Considering it, even today, making the decision, a concrete change in our hearts, it no longer belongs to me. It no longer is mine. And whatever it takes to follow Jesus, that's what I'll do with it. The real question is, will we let go of the inferior things that grip our hearts and enslave us in order in Jesus to have true freedom, to have a true kingdom, and to have true riches that never fail us all from his gracious hand. Let's pray. God, you have been so rich and bountiful to us in Christ. You have sent redemption from our sin. You have sent an eternal kingdom that he has brought in and is bringing to completion. We await the day when it comes in its fullness. And you've promised us eternal dwelling with you in your holy hill. A place that's filled with righteousness, a place that's filled with joy and no lack and no sin and no uh, suffering. We pray that you would help us all to see the promises of Christ for all their reality, for all their faithfulness. We pray that you'd help us to see the things that we have, the things of earth, human treasures, whether our righteousness or our wealth, for their true nature. Help us to yield them all to you and say, I just want that righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. I just want to receive the kingdom like a child. We pray that if anyone here has not yet come to Christ in faith, you would show the glory that's in the face of Christ to that person. We pray that they would see Jesus as the one they want and need above all things, that they would come in faith. Please, God, work in our hearts. The, 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 the application of these things to our lives is, is manifold and is uh, very complex, but we pray that you would convict where it's needed. We pray that you would assure us where it's needed. And we pray that we would respond with faith and obedience to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.